Good morning. Our Bible passage this morning comes from Luke chapter 24, and it would be helpful if you have a Bible to hand, if you could follow it. I'm going to start reading at verse 13. Luke 24 is, of course, the last chapter of Luke's gospel. Luke has just told us about the discovery that Jesus's tomb was empty early on that first Easter morning, and he continues as follows. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. Then they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I suspect that that passage is well known to many of you, but it's well worth looking at it again. It has a lot in it and it's worth reflecting on it. And in order to help us do that, Shall we start, as usual, by praying? Father, we pray that you would teach us this morning. Please help us to understand more about Jesus and live our lives in the light of what we learn. Amen. I wonder whether you would put yourself in the position of those two disciples walking along from Jerusalem to Emmaus on that first Easter morning. Uh, we know that one of them was called Cleopas, but we know absolutely nothing more about him. 
and we know absolutely nothing about his companion, although the vivid circumstantial detail in that passage has suggested to many that it might have been Luke himself. Whoever they were, we know that they were disciples. We're told that, to, to use their words, they believed he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God, and they had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now, of course, we don't know quite what they meant by that. They may have meant merely they hoped he'd restore independence to Israel, throw the Romans out. Or they may have meant something more. It doesn't really matter. Whatever their hopes, they had been completely crushed by Jesus's death. They probably felt just empty, numb. They probably had a whole lot of thoughts whizzing round their brain and talked endlessly about them. You see, they knew that the tomb had been found to be empty, and they'd heard that the women said that they'd seen angels, but they don't seem to have believed them, probably particularly because when Simon and John had gone to the tomb, they'd seen it was empty, but had found nothing else and seen nothing else. But as they were walking along, Jesus came up to them. However, they didn't recognise him. You may wonder why that was. Indeed, you may wonder why it is that several people, when they first saw Jesus after the resurrection, didn't recognise him. A lot of people have theorised about that, and some of the theories are definitely weird and wonderful, I can assure you. But really, it doesn't matter precisely what the reason was. The underlying reason is clear. Uh, we read about it in verse 16. Take a look at it. It says, they were kept from recognising him. In other words, God decided that they should not initially recognise Jesus, and so they didn't. But in any event, Jesus asked them what they were talking about, and their reaction was one of incredulity. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? In other words, what planet have you been on? But Jesus was undeterred. What things? he asked. And so they explained what had happened. And once they'd done so, it was Jesus's turn to rebuke them. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In other words, Jesus was saying, you haven't understood and believed the scriptures, have you? If you had, you know that Jesus had to suffer and die. So absolutely nothing has gone wrong. And Jesus then gave the expository talk to end all expository talks. This is verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. People have expressed frustration that we don't know precisely what he then said, what he said to Cleopas and his companion. But there really isn't any need for frustration. Jesus talked about himself on any number of occasions. And what he said is recorded by the four evangelists and other New Testament writers. We know exactly how Jesus applied the Old Testament to himself. 
I wonder what you would say if you were asked to tell someone what the Old Testament says about Jesus. Just think about it for a moment. What would you say? I suspect that most of us would start with the predictive prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Specifically, you might start with some of those passages from the book of Isaiah that we considered last year. And that wouldn't be a bad starting place. There are a lot of prophecies that predict the coming Messiah, that predict the coming of Jesus. Those, of course, include prophecies about the Messiah's suffering, to which Jesus alluded when talking to Cleopas and his companion. The point, though, is that there's much more to it than that. You see, Jesus said that, well, sorry, we are told that he explained to them what was said concerning him in all the scriptures. Now, I haven't done a close examination, but I suspect that if you took all of the predictive prophecies in our church Bibles and laid them end to end, they'd come to 10 pages, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less. At 10 pages out of 962 pages in our church Bibles. And by no stretch of the imagination can that be described as all the scriptures. So what does the rest of the Old Testament have to say about Jesus? There's a clue in something that Jesus said uh, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember? He said this. It's Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Jesus' reference there to the law and the prophets is to the whole of the Old Testament. And he was saying that he had come to fulfil it. We might initially be a bit puzzled by that, because we tend to think of fulfilment in terms of fulfilling a, a, a requirement, fulfilling an expectation, or perhaps fulfilling a prophecy. But think about it for a moment. But we can fulfil things in other ways as well. In particular, we can fulfil something when we realise its potential or when we represent its consummation, the end to which it was leading or perhaps to which it was pointing. And it's in that sense that Jesus fulfils the Old Testament a really good example of that, which might help explain that, is provided by what Jesus said at the beginning of the Last Supper. Again, you may remember this. This comes from Luke 22. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, he said. Of course, the Last Supper was a Passover meal. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. Now, hang on a minute. The Passover was a memorial. It wasn't a predictive prophecy. So how could it be in any sense fulfilled? Well, it was a memorial of God's act in redeeming his people, his Israelite people, from slavery in Egypt, and specifically a memorial to the sacrifice of lambs that saved those people from the judgment that God was bringing on Egypt. And it pointed forward 
to God's greater acts in redeeming his global people from slavery to sin, and specifically to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross so as to save his global people from the judgment that he will bring on the world. In other words, Jesus fulfilled in that sense the Passover. Jesus is the true Passover, the Passover to which the Passover in Exodus uh, points. And there are numerous other examples, innumerable other examples in the Old Testament of similar things. Think of the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest took a goat, the so-called scapegoat, and laid his hands on its head, and he confessed the sins of the people over it, and then drove it out into the desert, symbolising the removal of people's sins from them. And that, of course, pointed forward to Jesus, the true scapegoat, the one on whom all of our sins uh, is laid, and who takes those sins away from us. And Jesus fulfilled the whole of the Old Testament sacrificial system. That was the shadow which pointed forward to the reality of Jesus's sacrifice. And again, think about the temple in which the sacrifices took place. It symbolised the presence of God with his people and pointed forward to the time when God would dwell with people in the person of Jesus. And the priests in the temple, well, they were intermediaries between people and God and pointed forward to the perfect high priest, the perfect and only needed intermediary, Jesus. I could go on. Uh, Jesus is the perfect lawgiver and prophet in the line of Moses. He's the perfect king in the line of David. Furthermore, if we go back to the very start of the New Testament, we hear of the creation of the world, as the Old Testament, sorry. Uh, when we come to the New Testament, we learn that God effected that creation through Jesus. And looking to the future, we learn that Jesus is the one through whom all God's plans will be fulfilled. His plans for judgment, his plans for redemption, his plans for restoration. And those were the kinds of things that Jesus was talking about as he walked along the road with Cleopas and his companion. Small wonder that they later said their hearts burned within them as he spoke. You see, they thought that Jesus was merely a prophet, a great prophet, but still just a prophet. And they come to understand that he was far, far more than that. They thought that his death was a tragic defeat, but they came to realise that it was the centre of the victory of God. They thought that their hope of redemption was over, but they come to understand that God was in the process of effecting a redemption far greater than anything they'd ever imagined. And unsurprisingly, they then asked him to stay with them when they reached Emmaus, and he agreed to do so, albeit he only stayed for a short while. This is verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him 
and he disappeared from their sight. Some people have suggested that Jesus was there reenacting the Last Supper, but I think that's unlikely. In particular, Cleopas and his companion weren't present at the Last Supper, so it couldn't have been because of that that they recognised Jesus. Furthermore, all Jesus was actually doing was breaking the bread and blessing it in a way that Jews normally did at the start of meals. But it doesn't really matter. The two disciples had their eyes opened. They knew that they were in the presence of Jesus. And again, unsurprisingly, although it was late, they rushed back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples what they'd seen. But when they got there, they found things astonishingly transformed. Don't forget, when they had left, the disciples were scattered and utterly dejected. When they came back, the disciples were together and elated. They knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. He'd been seen by Mary Magdalene. He'd been seen by a group of women together and probably more importantly, from the point of view of the disciples then, he'd been seen by their de facto leader, Simon. They knew that Jesus was alive, and so what Cleopas and his companion had to say didn't come as a surprise to them. It merely corroborated what they had already been told. Jesus was alive. That's Easter Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, changed the lives of Cleopas and his companion. It changed the lives of all the disciples completely. The resurrection turned their view of the world upside down. Nothing could be the same again. You see, Jesus had called on them to follow him and had promised eternal life. And the resurrection showed that he could deliver on that promise. They knew that Jesus had defeated death. As the Apostle Paul put it a couple of decades later, death had been swallowed up in victory. And consequently, all that Jesus had said and done, all that was in the Old Testament, all that is in the Old Testament, took on an entirely new light. Again, as Paul said, all God's promises are yes in Jesus. Conversely, the things of the world took on a different and paler light. The Roman occupation, the threats of the Jewish authorities, the problems of daily life, all paled into insignificance. The disciples knew that the Messiah God's saviour, Jesus, was alive. And that's all that mattered. And what about us? Do you share the disciples' excitement? We should. We all should. Because the significance of Easter is exactly the same for us as it was for the disciples Jesus was raised from the dead. The point is not that he was alive, but that he is alive. You see, when we say Jesus is with us, we mean it literally. Jesus is with us. 
Jesus was raised to eternal life, never to die. And that changes everything. Amen. Thank you, Richard. What a great reminder. Because of the resurrection, everything is different. Jesus is alive.